Biblical revitalization. That's our lesson this morning as we continue from last week. Let's look at the couple verses we started off with last week in the first chapter. I think you're familiar with the story here, and it introduces to us uh, the condition of Jerusalem. Look in verse number, actually, just go down to verse number three. We'll pick up here. Nehemiah had gotten word, and they said unto him, The survivors who are left from the captivity in the province are there in great distress and reproach. The wall of Jerusalem is also broken down, and its gates are burned with fire. So it was, when I heard these words, that I sat down and wept and mourned for many days. I was fasting and praying before the God of heaven. I mentioned last week, by way of introduction, that there's hope for every church, regardless of the condition that they are in. And uh, everyone seems to think that the better days of the church were sometimes before the present days. Uh, probably very few churches in America say that we are having the best days our churches ever had, the healthiest time. But here's a condition in Israel that shows some great need. And I want to reflect that to the church of Jesus Christ today. I believe every church has great hope. We mentioned last week because we're connected to Christ. Uh, he is that song we sang a while ago, our living hope. There's hope because of our connection with Christ. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 4, where his purchased uh, possession having been redeemed. Colossians 1.18, he is the head of the church. We're the body. He is the head that gives us great hope as a church. Romans 8.37 says, we're more than conquerors through Christ who loved us. You remember he purchased us, Ephesians 1.4, because of 8.37 of Romans, it says, because of his love towards us that he'd given to us, Romans 8.37. Ephesians 3.20 says he's able to do in the church things that are exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think according to the power that works in us. The next verse in Ephesians 3 talks about, to him be glory in the church now and forever throughout all ages. Amen. Ephesians 3. 21. Matter of fact, a couple of chapters over, Ephesians 5, 27, he's presenting to God the Father his church that is glorious and is totally revitalized and totally revived at that point because she's found in verse number 27, Ephesians 5, spotless and perfect without any blemishes, nothing on it that airs the glory of God. And that's the purpose of the church. And yet, Overall, the American church is in decline today. We mentioned some statistics, statistics last week. Just briefly, I'll review those with you about the uh, recent statistics about the condition uh, of the church. Uh, there's just a few churches that are uh, actually have some increase and fast growing, and uh, that's about 3% of the churches in America. There's some that are growing nominally at about 5% impact throughout a year. There's about 24% of those. But the remaining 70-some percent, 73%, if I, my math is correct, are in some form of decline. Some are steadily declining, 32%. Many are rapidly declining, fast, 22%. And many of them are declining toward death. Nearly one-fifth of our churches are that close to death. Matter of fact, I've been told 4,000 churches a year close in the United States. 
That's the present condition of the church, just by way of statistics. And, uh, and to think about all that's happening in churches that reflects a need for reviving and revitalization. And the fact that churches seem to be going down and down and down. Remember last week I told you the average attendance in church worship was 137 in 2000. But today it's 65. 20-some years later, it's cut in half. 137 down to 65. What's that saying? Less people are going to church. Our churches as a whole have about half the people they had 20-some years ago on average. That ought to speak to us about the condition of the church. And so our Bibles are open to a passage in Nehemiah that reflects this. There's many passages in the Scripture that talk about the hope that's in the Lord, the design God has, the assignment He has for them to get back with it, to do what I've called you to do, to be who I've designed you to be, to take the place that I've put there for you, that promised place for you to serve and to grow and to go while you're residents and my people on the earth. And many stories in the Old Testament reflect that. And that's why we're here in the book of Nehemiah, just by way of introduction, as we talk about Salem entering into transition and trying to do some things, perhaps by the will of God, that's a sign for us to gain back the health and be the people that God designed us to be. Now, remember the history in Nehemiah here. About a thousand years after Moses and 400 some years before Christ, here we are in the book of Nehemiah. The people had been in captivity for numbers of years. They'd been released uh, in recent days to head back toward Jerusalem after all of their years of captivity. And they begin to return back. And Nehemiah gets the word being 800 miles away of what's happening there. As far as we know, Nehemiah had never, ever been to Jerusalem. Now, his his, his ancestry is in Jerusalem. He knew much about it, and, uh, and he was a Jew himself. But he had a heartfelt for his homeland that had uh, been in these ruins. And he gets firsthand in Nehemiah chapter 1, the present condition of Jerusalem. Here it is. It's been almost 150 years that these walls have been laying down on the ground. Matter of fact, the King James Bible calls it rubbish. There's much rubbish everywhere. The old, it's just a pile, pile, pile. Stone and bricks and lumber have just stacked high around the city of Jerusalem. Gates had been burned and, and walls had been destroyed. And yet the condition, it says, in verse number 3, Nehemiah sees that there's great distress and there's uh, much uh, reproach in this place. And the walls of Jerusalem have been broken down and tore down. So the condition for revitalization is the place that we're in that has such a great need. And today we think about the church of Christ Jesus. What is the great need or the greatest needs inside the church? Uh, you know, as we journey these next few months, going to be asking that question. You're going to be thinking about that. What is the greatest need or the greatest needs in the congregation for the people of God in the present condition that they are in. The present condition that they are in. You're also going to be asked somewhere along the line what you think is the present condition of the church as God sees it. And if you don't know, we're going to take some time to discover what that is. 
And just in a few short weeks and a few short months, this church is going to be able to say, this is the present condition of Salem Baptist Church, and we will agree upon it. We will see the condition of the church, and when it's seen, you will readily see the need that's set before us. It creates a desire to want to do something and to move forward to seek God's will. But notice when they saw the present condition that it, it did something to Nehemiah that really spoke heavily to him. And, uh, and as he saw this present condition of revitalization and a need that was there, notice what happened in verse number four. Here's when he saw this present condition. It leads us to the cry and confession. When he saw the present condition in verse number three, he began to cry and led him to confession for the condition that was found in Jerusalem. Here's what happened. He heard the words, verse 3. And when he heard them, he had to take a seat. He couldn't stand. His knees had gotten weak. He might have gotten lightheaded. He probably had some real emotion just sweep over him when he heard these words. He sat down. And then the Scripture says he began to cry. He began to weep. When I heard these words, I sat down and I wept. And whenever the weeping stopped, it turned into mourning and sorrow for certain or for many days. One theologian said probably as long as four months. I'm not sure about that. But, but a period of time, he was mourning the condition of Jerusalem. He'd only heard the words. He'd not been there yet. Just got the report, and it broke his heart. That's the condition of Jerusalem. That's the promised land that they crossed over in Joshua chapter number 1, where the milk and the honey was flowing, where it was just a free place. Everybody was divided and inheritance of land, probably got 100, 200, 300 acres for every family back in those days. That was, that's the condition Where's the prosperity? Where's the health? Where's the God getting his glory? That's the condition. It caused him to cry and to mourn for certain days. And not only that, it led him to where he entered into a season of fasting and praying before the God of heaven. Now, you're looking at a pastor this morning that believes fasting is a biblical principle designed for Christians for several purposes. This godly young man knew that. And so he enters from his sorrow of heart to fasting and praying for a while just to get some resolve about something he just heard about in a text or an email or somewhere he got the news. He just heard it. And from that, God brought his heart to go a little further. Nehemiah, that's not enough. And so in the next few verses, you begin to see where he begins confessing, confessing, confessing. He's not thinking of all the glory in the church. He's not thinking of the happy days in Jerusalem back in the past. He's not thinking of the heroes and the leaders that were there and the kings that led Israel. He's geared on the present condition of Jerusalem. 
And it enters when he sees and hears and speaks to God and with God for numbers of days. It leads them to confession. Notice, if you will, if we had the time, we'd go all the way through this text. But verse number six, he's confessing the sins of Israel, which we have sinned against you, O God. Confession. You know, there is a verse in the Bible that says in James chapter 5, verse 16, that's what we, we ought to confess our sins one to another. He says, not only them, but we, me, we have sinned. Go down a little further, if you will. Look in verse number 7. God, I wonder if the condition of Jerusalem is because we've acted very corruptly against you and have not kept your commandments. You know, sometimes when I look at the condition of a church, I began to think it's not so much the statistics and the, and the, and the geography and the demographics and all these things that we think are a real big piece of pie. A lot of it has to do with conditions of the members. What's going on with the members that perhaps caused this condition in the church? We have dealt very corruptly. Now, I've got a little suspicion in my mind. If you allow the church and you be honest and you go in this condition somewhere January, February, and March, I expect and I believe somebody's going to speak up in this church and says, we've done something wrong around here. We have dealt corruptly. That's how he responded to the condition of the great decline in Jerusalem. Lord, the sins of the people, the corruption of the congregation, we've dealt against you. And as he confesses, he begins to remember what God spoke in verse number 8. He begins to realize his call. Lord, we're servants. We are your people we are your body, verse number 9. Verse 10, we are your servants, your people. You've redeemed us by your great power. You've redeemed us by your great hand. Oh, Lord, let your ear be attentive to us. The condition of Jerusalem is horrible. God, we confess our sins and how we've dealt corruptly against your word and your commandments. And so this guy goes really deep with his real condition. What's really going on? It's not my brother. It's not my sister, Lord. It's me, Lord, standing in this need of prayer in this hour. And so we've dealt corruptly. Notice something about when you see the real condition of something, it arises in your heart to want to have a direction towards something different. Matter of fact, when I read my Bible, especially in the Old Testament, I go in the New Testament, I think about what has to happen before something gets better. This is what has to happen before revival. You looking for the touch of God around here? Okay. Follow me, and I'll take you on a journey. First thing it's going to say, God's going to reveal to you your real condition. And before you ever enter into his glory and hear his word and walk a step of obedience, the principles in Scripture always show the people going to repentance. I look in Isaiah chapter number 6. Here's a guy stepping immediately in the glory of God. Isaiah chapter 6, you know that story. I saw the Lord 
How long has it been since you've seen the Lord? I saw him high, and I saw him holy. His glory filled the temple. The angels he created were singing glory to him, glory to him. I saw the Lord. And when he saw the Lord, something happened. He saw the condition that he was in. You will never know the condition of the church, the real condition, until you first have a conversation with the Lord and his glory. I saw the Lord. I thought, you know, when I saw the Lord, we'd all be staying glory. We'd be shouting hallelujah. There'd be a lot of noise in the congregation. We come to worship. If we see the Lord, people will be smiling and glowing. I want to tell you something. You got a wrong picture here. When you see the Lord, it breaks you. Shows you your condition, how awful you are, how awful you've been, how you've broken his word. It brings you to your knees. Isaiah saw the Lord, and he goes quickly to a place of repentance and confession. He said, Lord, seeing your glory, I'm an unclean man. Lord, the people in the church all around me, he says, all the people around me have got a bunch of unclean lips too. We're all a bunch of sinners. It brought him to confession before he saw the glory of God speak to him. He said, Lord, he said, told Isaiah, even then, Lord, I'm going to take you. And if you're broken, I'm going to remake you and shape you. And I'm going to send you out. Picture of revival. You ever read that story in Jonah, have you? Man goes down to an awful, wicked place. Who'd ever thought? What missionary wants to go to Nineveh? Wicked, awful place. They'll never hear the word. And God spoke to him, got him down there. He preaches in Nineveh. And before they come to salvation, what they did, same thing you did when you got saved. You repent of your sins. It brought revival in Nineveh, did it not? I read in Psalm 51, David. I don't know the chronology of the book of Psalms. I, I, maybe I could look in a chronological Bible and figure this out. I don't, I'm not studied this. But in Psalm 51, David comes to a place of confession for his sin with Bathsheba and killing Uriah the Hittite. All the whole chapter of Psalm 51. And you notice all the praises of Psalm and the glory of God and the worthiness of God the Father, the exaltation of God the Father. I don't know the chronology, but I doubt those words were ever mentioned until he came to a place of his awful sinfulness that I have sinned and done this evil in your sight. God, I've sinned only against you and done this evil. And then he prays through that confession to be cleansed, to be renewed, verse 10, to be restored to the joy of salvation, verse number 13. Listen, the real condition that we are in in a church the real condition of Nehemiah was verse number three. There was desperation, a reproach. There was a lot of things broken down that had been in place for a long time. There's discouragement and there's confusion and there's, 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 there's opinions and preferences. And, and God's glory is just absent from that place, wouldn't you say, in Jerusalem for all these years. And so Nehemiah cries and confesses. And calls upon God through repentance, verses 5, 6, and 7. And prays a scriptural prayer in verse number 8. And so it is the entrance door for God to do something about his glory. 
and turn that condition back to what he designed it to be. But he didn't stop there. Sometimes we think praying is all we got to do. My daddy used to say, no, 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 no. You, you, you pray as though it all depends upon God, but you go to work like it depends on you. We, we could have closed Nehemiah chapter. You think that's enough for revival just to pray and confess our sins. No, it doesn't. You know what I found out about confession? It makes me want to do something about the present condition I'm in. You've been to the doctor, and he evaluated you, and he diagnosed you, and he ran you through the tube, you know, get these pictures, and, and got all this information, all that blood work, and come back. I talked to you, and you have that next appointment. And that doctor looks in your eyes, that man or that lady, and says to you, here's a condition that you have. It needs to have something done about it because all it will do is bring your health down to low and it might even bring you to a place of death. You discover your condition. Now, Nehemiah saw his condition and he agreed with God. He understood a little bit about the cause of it through confession. And he's got a great desire at this point. I, I, I've seen this over and I hope this and believe that it can happen here at Salem as we come to a place of seeking God's face to really see the condition as God sees it and confesses to God that we long to return back to you, there's a desire that increases the change and the transitions. You may be here today. Now look at me. You may be here today and you don't want to change one thing in this church. You got a condition that needs to be dealt with. God wants to change something in the church. Matter of fact, there may be a list of things God wants to introduce to the congregation. Did not we see in Ephesians chapter 3 a while ago, he's able to do exceedingly abundantly above anything that you think. And when I come to brokenness and see a holy God and see the conditions, I pray for the church. You can do the same thing for your family. I've entered in a season just for my family. Forget the church. Lord, it's the family that needs revitalization, needs revival. I've had that relationship with Christian brothers and sisters. It's torn down. That relationship has turned to a reproach. My friendship has turned into a distress. The wall's broken down. And I began to see, what did I do to cause this relationship to happen and break down? And I walked the confession, and all it does is give me that appetite to want to change and do something. And so God moves us to change. God's always moving his people. Anytime you move, you just made a change. You just made a change. And by the way, we should be used to it by now. If we're about 50, 60, 70, some of y'all about 80 years old now. <laughs> Bless your heart. You should be used to this by now. You've been changing all your life. You grew up. You ain't no little baby no more. You done added some things in your life. You done improved some things in your life. You've restructured things in your life. You ought to be familiar with the journey of change as to how healthy and how good. And it's the design of God to continue to move his people. Why would we close that door and philosophy in God's word inside the church house? And so the condition and the confession cause a desire for God to move and do something. And so Nehemiah chapter 2 is rising to the occasion. And here's what he's doing. 
Look at it, if you will. Notice the first thing he does. He begins to create some connections for revitalization in Jerusalem. He begins to make connections. He saw he couldn't do this by himself. He's 800 miles away. Mind you, ain't no cell phones. There ain't no Pony Express back here. <laughs> there ain't no way to talk back to people. I'm a coming, I'm a coming. How long does it take to travel 800 miles? Next month? Next year? I'm a coming. But he begins to make connections. And I believe God put it in heart. You know why? Because he consulted with the Lord a little early in a few verses, and he was attentive to what the Lord was speaking to him. I believe that God put it in his heart what he should do. And matter of fact, Nehemiah says that in one passage. He said, the Lord put it in my heart what I should do. So the first thing he does when he recognizes there's some needs inside this church, there's needs back home in Jerusalem, he begins to make some connections. Notice these connections were on the outside of Jerusalem. First person he talks to is his boss. Look at it, if you will, in, 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 the, in, in, in Nehemiah. Nehemiah walks in probably just a few days after. Remember, he heard these words. He's, he's, he's weeping. He's emotionally distraught. He's been mourning for certain days. He's been fasting and, 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 uh, and praying. And he walks into work one day, and the king notices him. He said that, uh, that I took the wine to the king, verse number one. And the king said to me, hey, boy, why is your face sad? You're not sick. It's nothing but sorrow in your heart. So I became dreadful afraid when the king noticed what I looked like when I noticed the condition of Jerusalem. He noticed the heart dread that I was carrying and said to the king, I said to the king, may the king live forever. Why should my face not be sad when the city, the place of my fathers, verse 3, in tombs, they lie waste and its gates are burned with fire. Then the king said to me, now notice he's making an appeal. He's creating a connection with people on the outside of Jerusalem. He said, Lord, he said, what do you request? So I prayed to the God of heaven. And here's what he said, Lord, if it's king, if it's pleasing to you, verse number five, I want to find favor in your sight and send me back home to the city of my father's tombs that I can rebuild it. Then the king said to me, now he's getting a second connection. Now he's before the king, and notice verse number six, the queen is sitting right beside the king. Look at verse number six, sitting right there beside the king. How long your journey going to be? Nehemiah, and when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me, and I set him a time. The first conversation when he gets off his knees and he's getting a little bit more recovery from his morning, he's returning back to work. He's still got a sad countenance, a heavy heart. He never had to speak. The, the king just noticed that Nehemiah's not the same here. Son, what's going on? Why is your face sad? And he told him why it was sad. So he spoke to the king and asked for permission to be gone for a while. Take a leave of absence, have you? He connected first with the king. And by the way, he connected with the queen. Now, I don't know about you. I'm reading between the lines here. Will you let me do that just a moment? I got a sneaky suspicion that when the king 
wants information, sometimes he knows he can refer back to his wife. Baby, you, you see the condition of your mind, don't you? What do you think? He's requested to go back. Should I let him go? He's been faithful in our house to feed us and give us our wine and look after us, be a caretaker for us. He's living in the palace of the king. And so there's a second connection there. It's the king Artaxerxes and then his wife. And then he adds another connection. He said, now, king, when I go home, I got to travel through several states to get back homeland. And there's people that don't like outsiders coming through their land. Back in those days, you don't just ride your horse through somebody's land if you're a foreigner. Lord, king, would you send a decree to the governors of all the place? Look at verse number seven. If it pleases the king, let letters be given to the governors. Here he goes. He's still connecting these outsiders. Who never thought of that? Man, I'd have thought all the answers were on the inside. All he needed was the Jews and the Jews nearby to go with him. But no, God put in his heart what he should do. He gets permission and blessings from the king and the queen. And then he now wants him to provide the letters so the governors will bless him too. And I can see him as he goes in. But when I go in, let letters be given beyond the river that they may permit me to pass through till I get to Judah or Jerusalem. And if that wasn't that, he said, King, I need another letter. <laughs> I need you to write old Asaph, verse number 11. He's the keeper of the forest, the king's forest. That he may give me the timber and the beams for the gates of the palace, the citadel which pertains to the temple, for the city wall, for the house that I occupy. And the king grants him permission as Nehemiah makes another connection, Asaph. By the way, I, I, I recognize Asaph had a keeper of the forest. You know, my name is Lockwood. I learned a long time ago what that name means. We're from England. I have ancestries in England. And every Lockwood I've ever talked to agrees with the ancestry search that we've taken. That our families were given the name Lockwood because we locked the woods. We were keepers of the forest. That was the lock woods. Our name came from that. We didn't stand at the main gate to secure the palace of the king or the queen. We were guarded inside the woods to keep the woods. You know, the one road in isn't the only smart people know. You can go through the woods to get the back door of the palace. <laughs> and so the woods were guarded. Will you, will you tell Asaph he's keeping the woods, the forestry, that, that we can come in and cut some timbers down and haul them out? No problem. So he makes another connection when he calls for Asaph. Look in verse number 9. He continues his connections. He said, Then I went to the governors in the region beyond the river and gave them king's letters. Now the king had sent captains of the army and horsemen with me. Here they are outside Jerusalem. Look at his gathering of people from the outside to do the work on the inside the connections for revitalization i just want to give just a little application sometime i i i just put it right down at home sometimes when a church gets stuck and they don't know what to do they need to call somebody on the outside they need to consult with somebody on the outside maybe to devise a plan maybe just for a counsel maybe just to hear the air, the ear of the of the mournful condition of the church I thank God for people on the outside of the church 
who are called of God to be able to be used of God to help a church. They're not, membership's not even there. But the condition was presented. Thank God. And you've got them here. You do. You've got people on the outside. Some of them may be here in town. Some may be across the street. Some may be in the next county. Some may be across the country. Some may be on the other side of the world that God may put in your heart to have a conversation about the condition of the inside. And so he's connecting. And sometimes that's greatly used from the outside. They're encouragers. Sometimes they're informationers. I like that. How many know the name Tim Lee? Tim Lee. Tim Lee is a war veteran from Vietnam, lost both his legs. He preached at Grace Baptist. I was a member for several times. And uh, I remember Tim came to Grace Baptist, by the way, about 10 years ago. And, and I'm in that service, and he's preaching salvation. You're a sinner. And he gave a simple plan of salvation. And 35 people or more came forward, personally dealt with, and got saved in the church, many of which were members of the church. I go home that afternoon, I can't figure this out. What has Ed Sears been preaching all these years? He's preached salvation hundreds of times. People in the church can say it backwards to frontwards. They can quote verses like this. This church is so doctrinally sound in the Word and Scripture. They all know about salvation. But why would it take an outsider to come in and tell people in the church their present condition if they don't repent to believe of Lord Jesus Christ and somehow God uses the outsider to speak to a church that's helpful. I give illustration, illustration, illustration of that over and over again. By the way, I believe every church ought to have outside connections. I do believe in the autonomy of a local church, but I don't understand this independent, so independent. We don't need anybody else. They're not going to listen to anybody else. And we don't want to just let everything come down the pike of who we are and have no connections with people on the outside that God could raise up and at a time of help come give the church some sense of direction. Nehemiah's an outsider himself. Connecting with outsiders to create provision and plans to make the transition to be smooth and helpful as he goes back to the journey in his preparation. And so sometimes there's connections for revitalization. And if you don't believe that, as I'm leading this transition the next few months in the church, you may see me invite a few outsiders to peg them a little bit. <laughs> Come over and help. <laughs> That'd be all right, wouldn't it? Good Christian people to think about. I do this all the time around my house. My wife, she makes me go get outsiders sometimes. Baby, don't be messing with that faucet. You don't know what you're doing, <laughs> you know. Or maybe you're doing some plumbing work or electrical work. And I get an appliance one time and I said, man, I didn't mess this thing up. Reminds me of that Andy Griffith story one time. Remember when the freezer went out with Aunt B? Raise your hand. You remember that one? And Andy kept saying, call the man, call the man, call the man. Get someone on the outside to take care of this, you know, and call the outsider. Man, I got sick of that one day. I had to go to an outsider to help me. Have you ever done that? Sure you have. There's help on the outside. Connections. 
And you'll see that in other stories in the Bible. I can show them to you. Well, God will use someone not even relatively related in any form or fashion except through the blood, through Jesus Christ perhaps, but to conspire with someone else, consult with someone else from the outside, come help us in this condition that we are in. So uh, that's a good option. You've done that in a form just inviting me to be here perhaps. So the connection to the outside. Next week, we've got to continue on this. I thought I was going to finish this today, but I can see you're with me pretty good here. I'm going to go finish as much as I can next week as we get into the latter part of chapter number two. You see the consensus that's needed on the inside. Connections on the outside, consensus on the inside. And you're going to like verses 12 to 17. We'll pick up there on next week that will lead us to look at the conclusion of the revitalization, chapter 3, 4, and 5, verse 16, they finished it. But it didn't stop. The rest of the book talks about the blessing and the health and the vibrancy and God's glory and how good it was once they got fixed. There's hope. There's hope regardless of the condition. Why? We're connected to Christ. He's our head. We're the body. We're more than conquerors, Romans 8, 37. He's able to do it, Ephesians 3, 20. He desires and designs the glory to be now and forever. Verse 21, so that we could be presenting in Ephesians chapter 5, a spotless church without blame. Father, thank you for the hope of a church coming back to health and, and experiencing real revival and revitalization, vitality once again. Oh, forgive us for being hopeless and helpless and to continue in our mourning. Lord, it's time to stop it and to look to your glory for the direction that's needed. Help us in this journey these months ahead. Anoint this place. Protect this place while we enter into these days of transition. In Jesus' name I ask it. Amen. Let's stand together.